manage that and pull that off and not many people can do that. He also served as a sort of chief of staff for me. I would say that's probably a good sort of a, a, a description. Um, I guess I would put as part of his job duties, but basically a little bit of everything. Very talented individual, highly relational, one of the most relational gifted people I've ever been around. Uh, good friend. Um, Is this uncomfortable for anyone else? I'm just wondering. His, uh, he keeps talking. Scott. Man, that was nice. Oh gosh. Okay, well, hey Redeemer. How are you? It's good to see you. I, I know some of you I, I don't really know very well, and, and that's always encouraging to see the church growing and changing and evolving. It's just really nice. So if you have your Bibles, go on ahead and uh, turn to Psalms chapter 73. It's going to be just about the middle of your Bible. Um, so like Scott said, I'm Pace. Uh, I work in Tuscaloosa now as a pastor. Before that, I was here. I was a, a member here for probably six or seven years. Uh, my wife, uh, Laura, and I met kind of in this church. Um, the first time she ever saw me was in this room, uh, which is really special. So, yeah, that was 2012. Um, wow. Anyway, we, uh, we feel like this is family, and just love you guys, so we're just happy to be here, um, Haley. Uh, anyway, um, so, yeah, I, you know, the last time we came to Redeemer was uh, December 2019, and it was really great to see people and visit, and uh, obviously not much has changed since December of 2019. Uh, yeah, thank you, Scott. Um, obviously not much has changed, um, but, you know, you can make a lot of jokes about 2020 because uh, it's it's just such a strange time that we've been through, right? It's just, it's strange, and, and different people have different reactions to this, but I, I think if you're, you're like me, you've probably had some trouble processing all of 2020, uh, and I think that's why I wanted to take us out of Revelation today and go into a psalm, because in 2020, Psalms, for me, provided a refuge, and it would help me slow down and actually be in God's presence, which is something we're going to talk about, something we just sang about. So regardless of what I was feeling or what was happening with me or in the world, I could always look to the Psalms to do this one thing, to shape me to worship God. That's what the Psalms are about. They're about shaping us to worship God. They teach us how to pray. They teach us how we should sing. They also, this is important, Teach us how to feel emotions and bring those to God, all in a way that would glorify God and often make us more like him. So in this way, Psalm 73, this psalm we're going to talk about this morning, has been incredibly important to me in the last year. So I'm not going to read the whole thing right now. We'll cover the whole thing, but I'm going to read a little bit of it. So let's just uh, listen together, starting at verse 1, Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. 
their bodies are fat and sleek. Verse 10, therefore, his, that is God's people, turn back to the wicked, and they find no fault in them. And the wicked say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? We start to hear Asaph's heart in verse 13. Asaph cries out, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 23 to the end. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We just read so many words. Would you soften our heart to receive those words, to feel, to cry out to you. Guide us by your spirit in this time as we seek wisdom together. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. What is this psalm about? You could probably make a list. We could have a chalkboard and I could write down a bunch of different things. But at the top, we see that Asaph wrote this song about what I'm calling an emotional journey that he went on. For context, Asaph is one of the main writers of the Psalms. He was a worship leader in Israel, probably a worship pastor on a national level. And from his position, he started to witness injustice being done in his country and among his people. And it wasn't just in the news. It wasn't just something he was hearing about. It was a local problem. This injustice was affecting people he knew and clearly cared a lot about. And the problem was really personal to him. It affected and hurt him personally. We can probably track with some of this, right? Just using that language, framing it that way. We can think about things just in the past year, whether it's a national event or a relational experience where we've had an injustice happen and we've been hurt. But what I want us to recognize and focus on today is Not so much just the fact that Asaph was hurt, but what Asaph does with his hurt. He actually says it early on. He says that when he saw injustices happening in the world, he becomes envious. He becomes envious. That's our problem today. What is envy? You've probably heard of the seven deadly sins before. Uh, There's a theologian named Rebecca DeYoung who I'm very uh, just amazed by. And she has this book on the seven deadly sins where she talks about envy as feeling bitter when others have it better. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. And DeYoung says that most people get envy confused with jealousy. Because jealousy and envy, they look a lot alike, but they're not the same thing. So real quick, 
uh, Psychology Today actually agrees with her, and this is an example that they use. Envy occurs when we lack a desired attribute or thing that's enjoyed by someone else. Jealousy occurs when something that we already possess is in danger of being taken from us. So if jealousy is feeling bitter about potentially losing something or someone, envy is feeling bitter about desiring something that you don't have, even if it's just peace. So if nothing else, lock in on the bitterness that Asaph is feeling. This is why when uh, one journalist was talking about all the deadly sins, they said, you know, of all the sins, envy is no fun at all. With lust, you at least get to have some fun, at least in his mind. But envy, no fun. It's just bitter. It's lonely. It's toxic. So this is the question I want us to wrestle with today. Because Asaph is feeling this, and there's a chance that some of you are feeling it right now, or you've felt it, and if you haven't, either you're not being honest, or you haven't felt it yet. We're all going to feel bitter in this life. So the question I want us to briefly wrestle with today is, how do we move on when we feel bitter? How do we move on when we feel bitter about things in our life? I want us to notice, I'm going to call these three steps. This isn't perfect. You know, anytime someone preaches a sermon, they try to fit a whole text into like a neat little package for you, and it's always got flaws. But we're just going to kind of follow this structure. I'm going to say there are three steps that Asaph takes on this emotional journey that we're going to take with him. And these phases are going to describe three areas where we are going to have to look if we want to move on from envy and bitterness in our heart, okay? So I'm going to start with step one. Step one's pretty simple. You have to look outside of yourself. Look outside of yourself. Um, This is how we're able to observe all the external things in our life that are causing us to feel certain ways. And Asaph models this really well for us. He looks outside of himself to take note of what's happening. Look in verse 1. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he sees God and he acknowledges that God is good. He acknowledges that he blesses these people that he calls the pure in heart. There's another name for them. Uh, That would be the righteous. So God's good to the righteous. Second, if you look down in verse 3, he says, now there's me, and I was envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, so there's another kind of character, this person that's the wicked. Asaph looks out at his life, and he sees God blessing the righteous, but then he sees the wicked, and they're prospering. They're having a really good time. And first I want to ask, what are these labels that Asaph is using? He's using two different labels, right? Righteous and wicked. And in 2021, that can sound really weird to us. Uh, we don't really use these words the same way because when we use righteous, we're also talking about like self-righteousness. And so it's often a dig at someone. We're talking about someone being full of themselves a lot of times when we use the word righteous. But then wicked is just a Broadway musical. So we don't really have that language. So how is Asaph using these words? Well, He's doing something that a lot of Old Testament poets would do, and that's this. There are two ways in the Old Testament that God refers to humans and views human beings. And these are categories that wouldn't offend the first audience of this text, wouldn't offend people in Israel, because they would understand what was being said. So just listen with those ears, okay? What are the two categories? In God's eyes, you can either be righteous or wicked. 
What does that mean? Well, the righteous are people who seek God and have hearts that long for him. This does not mean that they are perfect. It doesn't mean that they do everything right. It means that God has captured their hearts and they've embraced him. So today the righteous would be Christians, people that have had their hearts embraced and captured by God. Meanwhile, the wicked are people who reject God, harden their hearts toward him. So righteous is for God. Wicked are people that are against God. Simple enough, right? It seems a little bit like a binary, but let's press in on that. Is Asaph harsh for calling the people in this psalm wicked? Is he harsh for looking at his enemies and saying these people are wicked? It seems extreme to me, right? I'm living in 2021, and I'm wondering, isn't there like a mushy middle? Like, why would he just say that these people are wicked? Well, uh, it's kind of a question for another time, but at least here, he gives a lot of reasons for why these people are wicked. And it's kind of objectively true once you look at the list. So let's look at the things that make the wicked wicked, and let's see if we can understand what Asaph is seeing when he looks out. And see if you can recognize symptoms of wickedness here. Okay, main image we get of Asaph's wicked enemies is really well put in verse 12. He says that the wicked are always at ease, but increasing in wealth. They're somehow successful and lazy at the same time. And how lazy are they? Um, this is really funny. Asaph calls them fat twice. And, and it's not fat shaming. What he means there is uh, in the Old Testament world, <laughs> do you have any idea how hard it would be to be fat? Seriously, like you're working all the time, you're, you're, like portions are different, everything's different. You don't have the wealth or the resources most of the time to sit around getting fat. And so someone that is fat is very successful, and that's what he's trying to say. But what he's also trying to say is that these wicked people seem to have amassed this wealth and this ease without much effort, and they're only using it for their own pleasure. They're not blessing others with how they've been blessed. And at the same time, the thing that makes Asaph really mad is even though that's the case, these people don't suffer. It seems like God is okay with them. And what's even worse is not only do they not suffer, not only are they fat and wealthy and happy, um, but they're still not good people. They're self-righteous. They're full of contempt if you look at verse 6. And uh, real quick, are you making any connections to people in your life, to people that you see in the world? Um, it was really hard when I was first preaching the sermon, uh, a version of the sermon, back before the election in August, because a lot of people thought I was talking about one political candidate. But then at the same time, I'd have a lot of people come up and be like, man, that was so good. I'm so glad you said that about that other political candidate. So I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying... We can see this, like this is very true of life, that there are people like this in the world. Okay, so who are these wicked people? What, what makes them truly evil? For Asaph, verse 6, they are violent. Verse 7, they have hearts full of folly. Verse 8, they threaten people and they shoot off at the mouth. Verse 9 and 11, they are blasphemous against God and they slander other people. So in summary, wicked people here are those that are unjust and they do unjust things. Wicked people are unjust people who do unjust things. And the fact that they flourish in Asaph's eyes is a gross injustice. Can you relate to this? Okay. The worst injustice, though, for Asaph as a, a leader in God's people is that 
the people of God look at the wicked in verse 10 and 11, and they find no fault in them. They can't see it. They can't smell the corruption. Instead, they see the success, and it's attractive. Their lifestyle, their swagger, it's attractive to God's people. And even when the wicked outwardly mock God in verse 11, we see that God's people are still willing to follow them. I know that's a lot of info. I know we just like blew through 12 verses. But do you see that when Asaph looks outside of himself, he's able to take in all these external factors. And you can get a good idea of like, okay, this is why he's bitter. There's actual stuff going on. And he has taken the time to really slow down and look around and and take account of what's making him feel the way that he feels. You know, of all the things that he does wrong in this passage that he talks about, this is something he does right. How often do you, how often do I, make an effort to slow down, look outside of ourselves, and really make connections with what is upsetting us and why? You know, we've said that Asaph becomes bitter, but there's something he does really right here, which is he looks at the problem of the wicked, and he doesn't merely focus on himself. In fact, we haven't even gotten to where he talks about the way that it makes him feel. Right now, all he said is, this is what they do to offend God, and this is what the wicked do to offend my neighbor. That's all he's done so far. He's looking at how it's affected God and their relationship with God, and then he identifies how it affects their neighbor. Because the wicked are blasphemous, and they have sinful behaviors that offend God, they obviously have a poor relationship with God, but at the same time, the wicked lie to his neighbor, they cheat, they oppress, and they mislead others. So the first takeaway is, when you look outside of yourself in a hard situation and you're trying to understand it, maybe the first thing you should do is not think of yourself and apply it to yourself. You should first see how it's affecting the world around you, namely how it's affecting your Lord and how it's affecting your neighbor. And whenever possible, sometimes it's not possible, but when it's possible, think of this first. Go there first before you think about yourself. Is that a struggle for you? Probably, right? It's a struggle for me. And here's another struggle um, that may be even more challenging. I was talking uh, to Russell in the back, and I was telling him I've been a Christian for about 10 years. And, uh, you know, this has actually been my hurdle. Uh, Here's what it is. Maybe many of us haven't really taken the time to acknowledge or let alone process so many of our emotions to begin with. We just don't process our emotions. We, we know that we have emotions. Maybe we feel anger. Maybe we feel excited or happy and we laugh. But we're not really in tune with what's going on. And please don't tune me out here. I know this is going to sound like self-help, but just hang on. This is important. If you don't process your emotions, I truly believe this, you will never get past step one of dealing with your bitterness. If you don't become in tune with what you feel and how it affects you and how it makes you act, you will never, I mean this, you will never get past your bitterness. And that is going to create a wall between you and a further relationship with God. You're going to hold yourself back. Okay. I don't like to do this, but uh, there's a book that I know Scott took some of the CEO staff through, and I'm just going to recommend it right now. Um, Because you probably have some questions when I talk about emotions like this and them being good. And I would just point you to this book. It's uh, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's by Pete Scazzaro. Um, it's the best Christian book I, led, I read last year. 
Um, and I'm, I'm PCA. I've been, I've been in seminary. Like, I know what good theology is. And this is a great book. It's slightly outside our stream, but it's great. And if God taught me anything through Pete Scazzaro's work, it's that when you ignore your emotions, that is not just a small mistake. It is a spiritual mistake. Similarly, if you're like me and you look at this psalm for weeks, you realize that the only reason that Asaph is able to move on is because he's in tune with his emotions. He's able to see what they are and make connections. And now, this doesn't mean that Asaph lets his feelings rule him. I know that's probably someone's question. Instead, what he's doing is he's paying attention to his feelings and how they impact his inner soul and his outer behavior because your feelings impact your inner soul and your outer behavior. So being in tune with his emotions allows Asaph to look outside and account for what he's feeling, which is ultimately going to lay the groundwork for him to be able to move on. So that's step one, look outside, make connections. Okay, step two. Remember, this is just me, and also this isn't a very good thing. So if we're looking outside, in step two, we're going to look inside, okay? You look inside. Weren't we already doing that? Sort of. Shut up. It's fine. Um, this is where we move from what Asaph is experiencing to actually what Asaph starts doing, what's happening in Asaph. Because Asaph has seen the wicked, but now he's seeing the wickedness in himself. If you look at verse 3, he admits that he doesn't do the right thing. When he sees all this injustice happening in the world and the wicked are having their heyday, he does not run to God. He doesn't go to God first. He doesn't even, as a leader, go confront the wicked first. And maybe what's even more important, he does not even try to protect God's people. He doesn't talk about any of that. The only thing he talks about is, I got envious. I became envious. I got bitter. And to be fair, it sounds like he is in a tough situation. It makes sense that he would go there, right? He's a prominent worship leader. He sees these wicked people. They're leading God's people astray. And in verse 14, he talks about how he feels stricken and rebuked. It's as if he's being directly ridiculed, punished, tormented by the wicked himself. And what does it do? It wears him down. Have you been weared down by the hard situations that you've been in? I'm sure you have. I've been there too. And because of all this, he becomes bitter. He wants success. He wants God's people to follow him again. He wants life to not be so hard. And bitterness springs up. How bad does it get? He cries out in verse 13, I have kept my heart clean in vain. We'll get to how bad that is, him saying that, but just know it's, it's pretty intense. Where does this bitterness take him? If you look at verse 15, uh, it seems that he, at some point, probably, I'm reading commentators about this, they say that he's actually talking about renouncing his faith. He's talking about walking away as a leader. He wants to step back because he's seen this injustice and how God hasn't dealt with it, and he wants to move away. Verse 21 he goes so far to say what had happened was his soul had become embittered. Not just like his feelings, but his very soul was embittered towards God and towards other people. It's gotten that deep. The result is in verse 22 that he starts to act like an animal. There's a lot of meaning here, but I'll just say in Bible speak, this means he starts to actually reject God, reject other people, and live just for himself. I mentioned Rebecca DeYoung earlier. She has a book called Glittering Vices, and in that book, uh, she talks about envy and bitterness and what happens when it takes root, and it's not pretty. People, you, you know this, you know bitter people, people who become envious and bitter in this way, they gradually become outwardly hateful and spiteful as 
inward bitterness takes root. Outwardly hateful and spiteful. This is what she says. When bitterness takes root, people start to see a situation as essentially antagonistic. It's me versus you, us versus them, my good or your good, and never both. You see how isolating that is? You see how sad that is? What's worse is envious people, they don't only hate their enemy, they start to hate God. You see that with Asaph. So what I'm calling step two is the point when Asaph looks inside himself to see that this is happening. He notices that this transformation is beginning. He's not an upright leader of God's people. He's becoming a bitter animal. And what happens? Well, we know this intuitively as humans. It's why uh, the villain in all the blockbuster movies always has a chip on their shoulder and never gets resolved, so they become a tyrant. Um, I had five examples of how this happens when people become bitter in movies and then become villains. Um, but I'm going to use one that is from Christmas time. So it's a wonderful life. We all love it's a wonderful life. Uh, Mr. Potter, he's kind of a villain, right? And we see one scenario where if George Bailey had never lived, then Mr. Potter, not only does he like continue his bad lending pra- practices and like get people to file bankruptcy and put them in uh, slums and things, he ends up taking over the entire town and naming it after himself which is kind of funny that he would do that, but it's also really villainous, right? And you never learn what makes him so bitter, but that's why George Bailey always calls him an old buzzard because he's just a mean person. He's just very mean. And we know this from any movie we know with a villain. We see this happen, and we know at the root of that villain is some kind of bitterness, some kind of pain that they never dealt with, and it festered, and eventually they grow up and they name a town after themselves. You know, It's not good. Not, not a good way to be. Okay. So, unchecked bitterness can compel you to hate God and hate people. I've said this like 30 times. Do you get it now? It affects you. So let's look at Asaph's journey so far. Asaph has witnessed wicked people who defy and oppose God and mistreat others. And then Asaph gets bitter. And then he starts to feel hatred for others and resentment for God. What is that going to lead to? Eventually, those feelings are going to become actions And Asaph is going to openly defy God and openly mistreat others. Because when you allow bitterness to take root, you will become what you already started to despise. Do you want to be like that? I don't. I don't think you do either. So let's practice step two for a second. This is the question I think you knew I was going to ask. Where is your bitterness? What is it? What person makes you bitter? What circumstance or relational slight makes you bitter? What news made you bitter when you heard it? What's the source of pain? And then can you see how that bitterness has affected you? I bet you can. Your relationship with God is probably different. Your relationship with others, your ability to be who God has made you and called you to be, it's, it's probably stunted in some way if that bitterness has taken root. So think about this. Maybe... It's, again, an injustice in the news. There's a leader, there's an organization, a business that gets away with something they shouldn't, and that makes you really sad. Maybe you have a problem in your own small life. You were hurt really badly by a family member, a friend, a coworker, a classmate. Maybe you've never felt like a situation where there was a lot of pain actually got dealt with well, and it feels like you just have this poison in your belly with no antidote. I have felt that way. Very much so. 
do you really want to move on from that? Or have you maybe become a person that's just content being bitter? That's the worst situation you can be in. That second place is really scary because, again, Asaph says he would have forsaken a whole generation of Christians, a whole generation of God's people. He would have just left. It has really bad consequences. So if you find yourself sitting in bitterness, there's a good chance that that's a red flag that you really need to process seriously. Okay, and finally, if you are having trouble identifying something, some bitterness, it's probably, again, not because you don't have bitterness. It's probably because you've pushed it away in some way. And I get it. It's painful to think about the ways that we've been hurt, but when we discover bitterness poisoning us with resentment, we must act. We must fight to move on. If we're going to get close to God, if we're going to get close to people, if we're going to heal, we have to fight it. What does that action look like? How do we fight? This is step three, real quick. Step three is simple. You have to look to God, and you have to keep moving. You have to look to God, and you have to keep moving. So one more look at Asaph's journey through bitterness. There's a moment about verse 15, verse 16, where Asaph essentially asks, if I can't share my bitter feelings with the world, if I can't just, like, walk away, what am I supposed to do with this emotion? That's a great question. I wonder if some of you are asking it. And it's in that desperation that we see Asaph start to go to God. Verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, and that's when I discerned the end of the wicked. And if you study the psalm, there's something interesting that happens. Initially, you can only see this from the Hebrew. Uh, In verse 17, Asaph goes into God uh, a little bit like a kid that knows that they stole a cookie from the cookie jar and their parents know, and they're being called to the living room. It's a little bit like that, just kind of like, it's not, it's not good. He's, he's moving slowly. But what you see as this goes on is Asaph becomes more honest and more bold about his bitterness as he actually gets in God's presence. So what happens? Well, it starts to, to happen that he sees reality for what it is. Is If Asaph has felt like God has been asleep, he doesn't feel that way anymore. How is that? Well, in this section, verses 18 through 20, we see that God's probably been at work the whole time, and Asaph is finally realizing that. In verse 20, we get this image of God rousing himself, waking up to deal with the wicked. And when the wicked finally fall, it happens just like that. It's verses 13 and 20, and this is what Asaph draws a conclusion of. This is what God does. He says, this is what God does. Even when the wicked seem to have it good, just like in verse 27 down at the end, it's always the reality that the wicked will perish and God's righteous justice will be done. God, in that verse, in verse 27, literally puts an end to the unfaithful. And this suggests also that God's justice, when it happens, it's permanent, but it's also eternal. Like it it doesn't have a stopping point, it's eternal. When he brings justice, it is eternal justice. And as Christians, one thing that eternal justice should stir up in us is, if you guys have been studying Revelation, right? Okay. Yeah, you you should know what's going on here a little bit. Um, Jesus, like, brings justice once and for all, for all eternity in the book of Revelation. That's what we see. Because even though Jesus 
went to the cross, and that in itself is an injustice, from an unjust court system to unjust rulers, all these things, an unjust Satan, all these things. The wicked actually don't win in that moment. God uses the injustice of the cross to enact his justice, to bring his justice about. By dying on the cross for us, Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, is the only true righteous one. And he conquers sin and death for us. And his resurrection is the proof that justice has been done. So I know you've been studying Revelation. I would just say hang on to chapter 20 because this is where Jesus brings his justice in big ways. And it's a beautiful picture of this psalm, of what Asaph is describing in action. God does not let the wicked flourish forever. He deals with them, and when he does, it's permanent. That's important. It also helps us see maybe my bitterness is kind of silly. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Um, Like Asaph, we should probably see how God handles evil and injustice, and we should probably rejoice. God really does care. He really does come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He's bringing his justice into an unjust world, and he's making things different, even today. He does it today. He will continue to do it until someday, when he comes back, the job will be done, completely done. So if we, like Asaph, can feast on that truth, can trust in that, that that we have that hope, that Bitterness, like, will one day be gone. Injustice will one day be gone. Then our own bitterness can start to be eradicated, just be caught up in the light and the glory and the hope of God. And we find in those moments that being hurt instead becomes being healed, and being resentful instead becomes being forgiving and also being forgiven. And so... You see this transformation that takes place in Asaph when you look at these final verses. God and Asaph are like in lockstep. Asaph has now been able to acknowledge his bitterness. He sees that he was a beast, and he moves on. And it's in this moment, even though he's initially hesitant in verse 17, by verse 23 and 24, Asaph is changed. Listen to this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. So what he sees is God is right there. God is with him in his bitterness. And all Asaph ever had to do was go to God and bring his bitterness and be willing to move on. It's from that place that Asaph writes one of the most famous verses in all of the Psalms. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Remember Bitterness is wanting something that someone else has, right? It's bitterness is wishing you had something. Bitterness starts with this envy of wanting something that you don't see happening. But in this moment, Asaph is transformed. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you hear that reliance? Do you hear how he's turned? By taking his bitterness to God, he is turned away from it. And he's now trusting. The wicked only have their pride to stand on, but God's people always have the rock of salvation, the promise of justice and healing. God is always about this work, and Jesus, through the work, is sure to complete it. So how do we move on when we feel bitter? If we step out, if we look outside at the full picture, then we look inside to understand our need for healing, where we're wrong, 
where we're bitter. Then we go to God. We bring it all to God. And he'll get us moving. And through his love, we can and we will move on. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are truly restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are envious until we find our desires met in you. Our hearts can be wicked until we are covered in your righteousness, Lord. Be with us. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. May we rest in your presence today and forever. And instead of bitterness, may we only taste your joy and your sweet grace. It's in your name, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Amen.